You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music welcome to sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media i'm jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the chicago sun times and i'm greg cott i write about rock and roll for the chicago tribune today on the world's only rock and roll talk show jim and i are going to look at two of life's great pleasures music and food We'll talk to author and rock and roll chef Anthony Bourdain and give our choices for the greatest rock songs ever about food. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Greg, it's looking increasingly like EMI Records is going to be shattered. They are one of the last four remaining major labels, and they are going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. <laughs> Looks like they're losing the Rolling Stones to Warner Music. The Rolling Stones catalog is one of the richest in rock history. Never been exploited particularly well. Parts of the early 60s catalog belong with Atco. Uh, later stuff's been reissued by Virgin, but it's always been kind of a sloppy job. A lot of money to be had there. It's estimated that if EMI loses the Rolling Stones... They're going to lose upward of $6 million a year in revenues. But Guy Hands, the guy who is running EMI, doesn't seem to care. He's, he's cutting 2,000 jobs at the company. Radiohead and Paul McCartney have already walked away. It's said that Robbie Williams and Coldplay are both looking at leaving. You're seeing the death of yet another giant, which would leave only three major labels. 7,000 jobs in the industry have been lost overall, as you mentioned, 2,000 with this latest EMI cut alone. And the fact that this back catalog is leaving the label is huge because a lot of these labels, the reason that they made so much money in the CD era is that they were able to resell those records to consumers, the Beatles back catalog, the Rolling Stones back catalog, the Bob Dylan catalog, the Beach Boys catalog. That's where the money is for a lot of these companies. Well, sure, they sold it to us on vinyl and then 8-track tape and then cassette tape and then CD, and now they'd like to sell it to us again on MP3. Well, consider, Jim, that seven or eight years ago we had six major labels. Now, if EMI continues to head in the direction it's going, we may have only three. That's a little bit of Daydream Believer by the Monkees, a song written by John Stewart in the late 60s. It helped put the Monkees on the map. The reason we bring it up is that Stewart, the songwriter, died a few days ago at the age of 68 of a massive stroke or brain aneurysm in San Diego. Stewart is perhaps best known for that song, a huge, huge hit that's been covered many times, including by Stewart himself. But he also produced more than 45 albums of his own. He was a key member of the Kingston Trio in the early 60s, really helped put folk music into rock in the 60s. He was an influence on people like Bob Dylan, for example, and Lindsey Buckingham of Fleetwood Mac, who adored the Kingston Trio and ended up producing a lot of uh, Stewart's music in the late 70s, including his biggest hit. 
Stewart also is credited with putting the Americana singer-songwriter movement on the map with a record called California Bloodlines in the late 60s, combining the folk with the rock. It had a profound influence on artists like Bob Dylan, and to this day you can hear its influence in the music of Lucinda Williams and Steve Earle and countless other singer-songwriters. Stewart, a very underrated singer-songwriter, never really had a huge, huge career, but people like Lindsey Buckingham in the rock world were huge fans, not only of his work in the Kingston Trio, but in, of his songwriting in records like California Bloodlines. And Buckingham produced Stewart's biggest hit in the late 70s, Jim. You're right, Craig. I think that's what we should pay homage to him with. It's uh, the single Gold, a top five hit in 79, where he's duetting with Stevie Nicks. Here it is on Sound Opinions. When the lights go down in the California town, people are in for the That's Gold from John Stewart, a top five hit uh, produced by Lindsey Buckingham. A little tribute to John Stewart, dead at the age of 68. Greg, on a more upbeat note, that is a song called Fish and Chips by Funkadelic. You know, the number of great songs in rock and roll about food is staggering. <laughs> I found a list on the on the web of 500, and then I kept thinking on my own. I came up with another two dozen that weren't even on that list. Easy. We could do this show for about 78 hours. Easy. And we still wouldn't even get to all the great songs about food. Why is this? Anthony Bourdain, one of my favorite writers, author of the best-selling Kitchen Confidential and a host on the Travel Channel, he says there's three great pleasures in life, music, food, and sex, and they are all inextricably <laughs> intertwined. Absolutely. Bourdain uh, got his start as a chef uh, right around the time of that CBGB's punkier explosion in, in late 70s New York. He was hanging out with the members of the New York Dolls and the Ramones and the Dead Boys and Blondie. He was cooking food for these guys and going yeah. to see them you know, play shows at CBGB. So he has a wonderful perspective on it. It was recently chronicled in an article in Spin Magazine. And when Anthony was in town recently doing a book tour, we had him in for an interview. We are here with Anthony Bourdain, chef, raconteur, <laughs> writer, one of my heroes. Greg, I am more excited now than I think anybody since John Cale came and sat in that seat. I have to say, Tony, wow, I'm totally flattered. I as love a New John Yorker, Kale. you know what yeah. that means. Yes. <laughs> You've been talking about this for weeks, Jim. I like, have. Like a kid at Christmas, Anthony Bourdain is here. Well, you know I like food. 
I mean, people who, who've seen the picture know that I like food uh, probably more than you. And I was twisting your arm and telling you why. And there's one paragraph here from Tony's book, which is called The Nasty Bits, a collection of magazine pieces, essentially, mm-hmm. yep. which says it all. This is why this show is going to be so much fun, I, if I may. Or maybe no, Let's have you do it. Oh, my God. I don't think I can read it without my glasses. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. If, no, if food can lead to sex and if music can lead to sex, if the three have often been seen in each other's company – there's a direct connection between food and music. Does the music that chefs listen to while they cook and in their off hours when they're free to roam like the savage, unrestrained beasts we know them to be, does it lead in some direct way to culinary creativity? Do chefs see uh, music and the places and lifestyle surrounding music as inspiration or merely as release? After years of personal introspection and research and close questioning of some of the country's more accomplished chefs, I arrived at some conclusions. There you go. <laughs> Managed to slog through that. <laughs> well, when I read uh, you know, the book that really put you on the map, Kitchen Confidential, it, it struck me that – I mean you describe a modern-day – pirate kind of lifestyle among chefs in the kitchens, uh, both in the, in the big four-star, you know, three-star uh, mm-hmm. restaurants of the world and, and line cooks at the local Greasy Spoon. Well, and it's kind of like what rockers have always been. Well, there's a lot of overlap, I think, in, in you know, the talent pool. You know, the, the kitchen has always been sort of a refuge for misfits, uh, marginal characters who kind of instinctively understand that the nine-to-five world is not for them. I think what's been missed as well is that our hours coincide. I mean, certainly when mm-hmm. I came up in the business in the mid, early and mid-70s, you know, musicians like to hang out in bars. We have a bar in our restaurant. You know, musicians <laughs> get off work two in the morning. We get off two in the morning. So it wasn't a, it wasn't really a, a stretch. You know, musicians like free food. We like, you know, to get into concerts for free. <laughs> so there was a lot of overlap there. What about that interest in music? I mean, what came first for you? You obviously were a very accomplished uh, chef early on. But that piece you wrote in Spin Magazine about, uh, you know, the, that scene back mm-hmm. then, you were intimately involved and it seemed like you were going beyond the surface level music. So obviously you'd been into music for a while as well. Well, my father worked for Columbia Records uh, when I was a kid. And, you know, so I was on sample service early on. You know, my dad would come home. Though He worked in the, the masterwork, Columbia Masterwork Division, classical music division. He'd come home, you know, when I was a little kid with, you know, here, Tony, this is, you know, Sergeant Pepper's. Everybody at the office in the A&R department says, you know, this is the greatest record ever. You should listen to it. You know, I, I had to remind him of this years later as, don't blame me for the drugs, Dad. You gave me that <laughs> album, you know. <laughs> so that was, you know, I grew up in a musical family where music was important and it was something we noticed and where I tended to be aware of the best albums, the best records of the time as, you know, often before they were released. Mm-hmm. So after getting uh, off work in the kitchen, mm-hmm. you'd be hanging in the early 70s with the Ramones with, you know, the members of the New York punk scene, the Dead Boys. You'd see the, I'd see the Dead Boys around. I, I mean, I was a big Richard Hell and the Voidoids fan. Mm-hmm. You know, I got all, I got the vapors when Richard Richard Hell would come in, uh, you know, for a glass of bourbon and his scrambled eggs in the morning. You know, that was a big deal to me. Yeah. Late last night I went for a walk Down by the river Near my home and what was special about that, I guess, is that no one else knew who they were. I mean, the punk mm-hmm. thing was, this was music you never heard on the radio and was not referred to in any magazine and was basically invisible and inaudible to everyone, for everywhere, for the, for the most part. 
for quite some time. So it was special, you know. You know, you mentioned the bourbon and the eggs in the morning, you know, for, <laughs> for Robert Quine. I mean, what, what would these guys eat? I mean, what, you know, were they as interested in food as you were in music? I think they were, they were just starving. I mean, yeah. they didn't eat enough. Uh, you know, a lot of that money went to dope. Food was sort of a secondary consideration. I mean, if you look at how a lot of those guys were living, it was pretty close to the margins. And, of course, they're not making any money. You know, maybe their girlfriends are making money, uh, you know, stripping or dancing or whatever, uh, which was a popular way to make a living at the time. So would you slide them a meal occasionally? Or yeah, I, like that? I, I mean, I remember we – I was a big Johnny Thunders fan, uh, and we managed to network a free meal for him. You know, we had him come in and eat at the restaurant. He came in all dressed up, you know, little tie, little little tuxedo jacket, <laughs> and terrified. That's the thing that struck me. He was really intimidated. I, he, he, like he'd never eaten in a fine dining situation before. And I remember when, it, when he was offered, like, would you like, you know, red or white? You know, he, he just had them both mixed in his glass. <laughs> and, you know, it was like a little kid. And it was, it was very, you know, sweet. Yeah, that's cool. You make the point philosophically that uh, that music can affect what's going on in your kitchen. You have played punk rock at different times, but now there are different soundtracks. Can you talk a little bit about about how the the stuff that none of us hear or see because we know we're sitting out mm-hmm. at the table, right? What's going on in the kitchens uh, where you have worked and like right. to work, and what's the soundtrack? Well, a lot of chefs now it's you know total silence during the service period. You know, there, there's going to be no music at all. But, you know, a mid-range joint like mine, uh, chances are, you know, when I was working in the kitchen every day, during prep, I, I liked soundtrack to Superfly, Curtis Mayfield, early sort of pre, <laughs> pre-disco funk, maybe a little George Clinton, you know, that kind of sound. Establishing um, a groove. Establishing a groove. During the service period, you know, you're kind of fighting for, for music, for DJ position, or at least you're trying to accommodate a lot of different tastes. You know, maybe a little punk, you know, Dead Boys early on. But then I got to kind of swap for some, you know, Mexican thrash metal or Mexican pop songs mm-hmm. and stuff like that with the majority of my kitchen are, of course, Mexican. You know, when I'm getting out of the kitchen, then then you get into, you know, more more adrenaline-based stuff, I guess. You know, then it's uh, definitely Ramones all the way. Because you got to get through the end of the night. Or, you know, classic stuff. Give, give you that one more shot of adrenaline to repel you out into the night. <laughs> um, <laughs> the day's just beginning. the front. But but do you think that the, what the cooks are listening to can be tasted in the end result? I mean, that's a philosophical. Heavy I know question. I know some chefs who definitely the on the more creative end who get flavors from from sound. You know, they get they they actually get inspired creatively by listening to to music. I'm not like that. I mm. I was always first of all I wasn't that creative a chef. I was more of a workhorse journeyman guy. But most chefs I think use music for release. You know, afterwards it could kind of you're looking for a, a pleasurable oblivion or to take you out and away from from the kind of coal mine situation you've been in. Mm. So I don't know what that's like. You know, well, I, I'm not inspired to cook by music. I like to cook to music. If I'm alone in my kitchen, you know, just cooking for a few friends—that's different. Then I'm, that's a whole different kind of group. I could be going, you know, old anywhere from Dean Martin. Mm-hmm. You know, I like old, like uh, cheesy British uh, gangster film soundtracks. Like, mm-hmm. get, I mean, very into the Get Carter soundtrack now in a big way. 
Well, that's an interesting area because I, I wanted to ask you this. And I think it's one of the key questions in my life. Like, what do you play when you have people over for dinner? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, what complements this meal? And so you have six guests over and you're cooking dinner for them. What do you put on? Does it depend on what you're serving? Does it depend yeah. on who they are? Definitely, I think um, Serge Gainsbourg is good for French. You know, maybe Serge Gainsbourg <laughs> with, uh, with uh, Brigitte Bardot, yeah, that yeah, wonderful yeah. single. Yeah. Elle est belle et son prénom c'est Bunny. A eux deux ils forment le gang Barrow. Leur nom Bunny Parker et Clyde Barrow. Bunny and Clyde. Bunny and Clyde. You know, something that's evocative of France if, if that's what you're doing with the food. And Italy, you know, definitely you're falling into that kind of. You know, Connie Francis, you know, yeah. <laughs> you're talking uh, Dean Martin. So you're going to go old school um, or you're going to stick you know, with I'm like the old pizza joint kind I of sound. I don't want to hear Portishead. And, you know, I don't want uh. dining lounge music <laughs> in the background. You know, that's so ubiquitous. Yeah. I, I'm not serving chocolate martinis. Why should I play chocolate martini music? You know? Mm-hmm. So it's not sort of an ambient thing. It's not like you don't want this sort of sifting in the background where people can sort of talk over it. You see, I've always gone that direction. Because yeah. Eric Satie said that ambient music is music that mingles with the knives and forks at dinner. Mm-hmm. So I can't play Satie. That's too weird. But I, but I always I, – I opt out with Eno. Because, you, know, yeah. you know, my in-laws won't object to Eno. Somebody hipper knows that it's Eno. You know, I'll put on the, you know, for the hipper crowd, I'll put on McCoy Tyner. For, mm-hmm. like, the little less hip crowd, George Winston. You know, kind of solo piano. Mm-hmm. You don't want anything too interfering with, you know, you don't want anybody to, you know, harsh their mellow, whatever it is. So, while so eating, metal know. machine music would be out, Yeah, right? I mean, you know. You know <laughs> it's probably music that could, could interfere with digestion, <laughs> physically. And friendships. Yeah, That's right. Asking. And the same thing for setting the mood in a restaurant. I'd love to hear the amazing soundtrack that's going on while you're cooking in the back. But what about the folks out front eating? What do you, what do you set for them musically? In, I mean, innocuous. You know, it's it's if in my restaurant, it's like Edith Piaf and you know French chanteurs and you know stuff like that. I do like you know kind of early early sixties French a pop sometimes, but really innocuous. So you don't want to you don't want to distract from the meal. I mean, that's true at home as well. You don't mm-hmm. want people to stop the conversation dead to admire what a you know forward thinking genius you were when you bought the album. <laughs> you know, that's just it's like people who used to. You know, stand up and show you that they could recite every line from a Firesign Theater or a Frank Zappa album. You know, right. there's something a little creepy about that. It's too know? much. It's yeah, too it's much. too much. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, Jim and I are going to continue our discussion with Anthony Bourdain. Then we're going to play our favorite songs about food. Avec tes souvenirs sur les bras, 
battre des gestes toute la comédie des amours sur cette terre qui va toujours Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're now going to continue our discussion about rock and roll and food with Chef Anthony Bourdain. We are talking to Tony Bourdain, who is a, a great writer. You need to own Kitchen Confidential, one of the greatest memoirs I've ever read. I like the nasty bits. Great collection of some of your shorter pieces. You have this great new book, No Reservations, and of course uh, a TV show <laughs> where you get to go around the world. Let's talk about that. Are you? Uh, you make the point several times, self-effacingly, that you're slowing down. The hell-raising Tony Bourdain of old, who would uh, stay out drinking all night and listen to punk rock after working a 14-hour shift in the kitchen. You're not that anymore. But when you go all over the world, are you getting to hear music? Yeah, a little bit. Um, we've been kind of looking for musicians as well as chefs to show me around as I go to various places. So been hanging out with bands in Argentina, for instance. Just did a lengthy scene with Morchiba in the U- recorded with Morchiba and Mary Clayton, strangely enough. Oh, wow. Uh, in, in, in England, I did a spoken word sort of homage to Get Carter. Mary, Mary Clayton, of, uh, who sang on Gimme Shelter, On right? Gimme Shelter yeah. and, and Performance, one of the great sort of eerie British gangster, psychedelic mm-hmm. gangster films of mm-hmm. all time. So it was a dream for me. I never met her, but she, they, she'd recorded a backup track that they used with this spoken word thing. So it was kind of a dream come true. Uh, hung out with Marky Ramone for the Cleveland show. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I'm getting weird emails from Ted Nugent, who I guess it oh. makes a weird kind of sense, you know. I like to... You he know, might expect you to go I like out to kill, kill smaller, stupider gonna... things and eat them, and yeah. so does he. <laughs> <laughs> you're not usually big on killing what you're going to cook. No, but but I mean, you know, it's you know part of the cycle of life, death, and regeneration. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, you, you're, you're not you're not a purist. That's what I I like about your sensibilities. Like you're just as comfortable eating a bad hot dog in a cool bar uh, on on the Lower East Side as you are in a four star French restaurant. Often more so. I and think. and I was going to say, is that you know, I mean, you, you've traveled in these worlds where you, you're around a lot of chefs. I mean, do most chefs share that, share that sort of sensibility where they can appreciate food at those kind of levels, or are, there, are they snobs? I, I think most chefs after work want a good hot dog or something good, local, authentic, and totally without pretense. And, of course, just like there are musicians, musicians, you know, people that, that you know, after a musician performs, they want to go see. There are chefs, chefs, who, who, who tend to simplify things and, you know, cook pretty straightforward stuff. Mm-hmm. I got to ask you about, okay, two artists that you have said you will never countenance anywhere, anytime, <laughs> in any restaurant <laughs> Not that you ever step right. foot in. No Billy Joel, no Grateful Dead. Yeah. I am the entertainer and I know just where I stand. Another serenader and another long-haired band. Uh, right. Well... Billy Joel is actually, you know, I've said no, no Billy Joel is allowed in my kitchen. Uh, you know, under, you're fired if you've seen visibly enjoying uh, Billy Joel. He has slipped into my kitchen on numerous occasions and sent me pictures of himself oh with God. signs saying, I guess you do let Billy Joel in your kitchen. I've had dinner with him. And as I said to him, I just hate your music, man. I believe you're absolutely, I believe you're really talented. I, I mean, I, I, it's, it, clearly you are. 
I just really hate that melodic kind of stuff. And he hasn't taken a swing at you? No, no. He was very cool. He, he's a good Because we've both gotten the nasty phone calls really? from Joel when we've dared to review him. He's a competitive he, guy. He was a very, very good guy with a good sense of humor to me. I, you know, uh, yeah. uh, I've been this making Billy Joel jokes for a long this time. I just, you know, so he's allowed in my kitchen anytime, just not, not yeah. his music. Yeah. Uh, the Grateful <laughs> Dead, I just, I just don't, you know, hippies... You know, anyone who likes the Grateful Dead, I have concerns about their arrival time and work ethic. You know, I, to start with, and, I, and I'm just—I had a bitter experiences in the '60s and, and, and '70s. You know, it all sort of died and was over by the time I, it was everything that I hated when the Ramones arrived and saved me. You know, endless pedal steel solos and noodling away on guitars, and you know, the words "oh, the show was great." It went on for seven hours. That that never <laughs> sounded good to me. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. no. Don't like it. Well, I think you have an opposition to to the extended meal too. It seemed like there's a little bit of opposition on your part. Like, why does this have to be a four hour extravaganza where you get the escort to the men's room when you want to go there? It's yeah, like, I would be. Uh, you know, a perfect world. I would be eating the world stuff from great chefs, the, the best ingredients. I'd be eating with my hands, and I would not have to wear shoes. You know? <laughs> street food, big yeah. fan of street food. Right, right. What about this notion, Tony? That Chefs are the new rock stars. Now, you, you are infamous as we are. You know, we're critics. We, we put our, ourselves on the line. You know, when we, when we, you just went off on the Grateful Dead, you know, but you don't do that for a living. You're just a guy mm. who has an opinion on the Grateful Dead. We can say in the paper, and we're going to get 300 emails the next mm. day. But, but you take on some of the other names, some people who do TV shows but apparently never cook, you know, and you give props to guys who, who may be stars now but, you know, worked in the kitchen the hard way. You know, it was fun making fun of Emerald for a while, but you know, uh, that's a hardworking guy who came up, you know, yeah. the hard way and deserves some success. With, you know, and 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 at least as a professional, uh, which is probably why they're giving him the chop over at uh, Food Network. Um, we're you know we're going through a transitional phase here where it's really not about the food, it's not about the cooking, it's about the personalities, and I guess in a lot of the same way that that MTV made a transition to. You know, I mean, how much music is on MTV anymore? None. Anymore, no, you know, yeah. None. So how much food is actually going to be on Food Network? I, I, I think, you know, about the same. <laughs> yeah. do, do you find that there's a correlation between great music towns, cities around the world, and great food? I mean, can a town have amazing restaurants and great food with lousy music or vice versa? You know, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I'm thinking about great music towns. I think, you know, people who like music tend to be sensualists people who like food tend to be sensualists you're you're open to music you're open to food and i i think those those attitudes tend to coincide more often than not. Well, our favorite uh, rock star chef, by by all means, is Tony Bourdain. Before you leave here, we have to thank you so much for coming by Sound Opinions. We do this thing with only with guests we really, really like, right? Where we, because uh, Greg and I uh, take turns putting a quarter of the Desert Island Jukebox, a track that we can't live without, at least mm-hmm. at this particular time and place. So give us a tune and set it up. One one tune? For today. Well, for today, for this moment. For today. Not the one to define you of all time. <laughs> Down on the Street by the Stooges off Funhouse. Whoa. And why? It just, if, if when things are bad, when I'm depressed, when I feel that life has been unfair, uh, that is my go-to song to feel okay about being in a really dark place. <laughs> <laughs> Can't beat that, man. I like that. If the students were a meal, what would they be? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Steak tartare. <laughs> I am run ready. Thank you very much, Tony. My pleasure.
Anthony Bourdain is not the only chef in the country that has a huge passion for rock and roll. In addition to his passion for food, we spoke to chefs from around the country who drew the connection between the pleasure of food and the pleasure of listening to great music. I'm Wesley Genovard, the chef to cuisine at Degustation. I, I believe that dining is sort of one of those experiences that, that, that can be elevated with music. I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's a sort of a sensual thing, you know what I mean? Something you hear, it makes you feel something. Same thing as you, when you eat, you know what I mean? If you eat something that just sort of makes you feel good and you're happy, you know, music's going to just make it that much better. Basically, when we think of food, like we think of, you know, textures, flavors, aromas, everything. So, so I mean, it is building. So, so like, you know, if you have something that's really salty, you might want to add something like a little bit acidic, sweet. I guess it is sort of like composing a dish. I mean, you just want a nice balance of wide-ranging flavors and textures and stuff. It is kind of like, like a rock and roll lifestyle, you know what I mean? It's like you, you live for this. We get here at 11, don't leave till 2. And it's not because you have to, it's because we love it. My name is Doug Sohn. I'm the owner of Hot Dogs, the sausage superstore in the Avondale neighborhood in Chicago. Hey, thank you. Can I get for you? Let's do a hot dog with a grilled um, mustard and caramel onions and pepper please. Grilled dog, right? Yes. You got it. Char dog, please. You're, you're pretty much guaranteed to hear the stuff that you know I listened to during my, my formative musical years, which was the late 70s, early 80s. So it's a lot of Buzzcocks, a lot of Clash, Devo, anything from that era. I wouldn't say directly like a particular music affecting a particular cooking ability, but it really does affect your soul, and that comes out whatever your endeavor is. The energy behind a great restaurant is the same energy that's behind a great song. I mean, it, it is a singular vision that everything sort of comes together, and when it clicks, there's no doubt that you can feel it, you know, in your person that this is right. Coming up with the sausages, coming up with the, the condiments and the menu, piece of cake. Deciding what I want to listen to every day, the hardest decision I have to make at this point. Hi, I'm Brenda Langton from Cafe Brenda and Spoon River Restaurants in Minneapolis. Music and food go together hand in hand. Um, when I think about them, holidays are connected. Whenever you have a nice holiday, you want to cook something really delicious. Weddings, funerals, festivals, any number of things going back to the harvests. It's sort of like cooks compose dishes like a musician would compose a piece. In the kitchen, I sort of let my chefs decide what they want to listen to. Oftentimes, it's not the kind of music I would like to listen to. My staff are quite a few years younger than me, so they tend to like some of the newer rock and roll that I don't care for, and now also a lot of the older rock and roll that I've been through, and, and I've moved on. I don't find it very peaceful to cook by, and again, the energy of a kitchen is important to what goes into the food. My name is Craig Serbasic, and I own a couple of restaurants, uh, Crow Restaurant here in Seattle and uh, also Betty Restaurant. I'm a huge music fan. 
there is a rhythm, I guess, and and I have a rhythm in, in as I'm cooking, I, I maintain a rhythm, and, and I think it's the same with a musician. It seems like both uh, musicians and restaurant workers are a little uh, crazy. I mean, I think food lovers know exactly what to expect and what they're looking for, as as would a music lover. You know, it's an art, and I think a lover of the art is, is probably going to love both music and food. It's an art, and, and we all enjoy it. My name is Graham Elliott Bowles. I'm the chef of Avenues at the Peninsula Chicago. I think music is the most important thing in my life. You know, I used to sing and play guitar in a band, and I was going to do that as a means of, of meager living, and then realize that to live in the van and kind of drive town to town and sell merch and make enough money to just get gas for the next show wasn't a great long-term plan. And I thought that this was such a great, beautiful form of expression as well with cooking, and uh, I decided to pursue this as the career and have music be the hobby. As a musician, you want to get your voice across. You have some kind of message that you want people to, to see and understand. And I think it, it's the same thing in cooking. Like Sonic Youth playing their guitars on like the grates of the air conditioner. You know, yeah, it's, it's artistic, but I don't want to hear that all day. And it's the same thing of me serving some really esoteric ingredient, turn it into a ice cream and shave it over the tip. You know, it's like, wow, that's kind of creative and cool, but I would never order that, like a big bowl of it. So how can you almost make your cuisine more pop-like, have it be fun and whimsical and creative, but still be able to, to bring along all those people that you originally had. This mentality that less is more, which I'm a big fan of. The idea is if I give you foie gras and truffles and caviar and all these other kind of things, I'm sure you'll make something delicious, but what can you do with a carrot? What if I forced you to only use carrots, onions, and celery, which is mirepoix, the basis of, you know, all cooking, and told you to come up with, you know, 30 dishes based on these three things. That, to me, is real creativity. And I read a quote that really hammered that home, which was by uh, Jack White, saying, you can have all these instruments and all the, you know, you can have your background singers and all that kind of stuff, but uh, it's when you only have drums and a guitar and vocals, it forces you to start seeing things differently and being more creative. I really like that mentality and bring it into the kitchen. Greg, some folks after our own heart. Lovers of music, lovers of food. Wesley Genovart at Dagustation in New York. Brenda Langton at Cafe Brenda in Minneapolis. Craig Servasic at Crow in Seattle. And Doug Sohn at Hot Dogs and Graham Elliott Bowles at Avenues here in Chicago. Outspoken foodies and outspoken music critics all, Jim. It's great to hear them. And I'm sure that we've got a few foodies and music fans out there as well who want to chime in. Give us some comments at uh, 888-859-1800 or email us at interact at soundopinions.org. We're going to be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with our choices for the best songs that link music and food.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Greg, I'm starving. I'm getting hungry. Uh, we're going to have to <laughs> wait to eat, but you're going to give us some music. We're going to go back and forth here on some of our choices for the best rock songs ever about food. So many choices, so little time, Jim. But, uh, you know, food is an incredible insight into the human soul. You know, what you eat is what you are, right? Yeah. And I think these songs kind of summarize that feeling. When I thought about what is a song, what is a great song about food that gives us a character, paints a character through the kind of food they eat, one of the songs I thought of was Tony Joe White's Polk Salad Annie. Wow. <laughs> oh, you're blowing my mind there. Oh, my God. Swamp Rock. I mean, the guy was a uh, Louisiana-born singer-songwriter, uh, came up in the late 60s. He actually had a huge hit with this song. But the mood, the atmosphere of the song, it paints an incredible picture of these lower-class people from uh, the South that he grew up around. And, and, it's, and in many ways, it's sort of a humorous and scathing portrait, but also a loving one because the central character is clearly a person that he admires. And, and she, every day, would pick polk salad, this, this turnip that grows in the South, and, and serve it up for her family, her somewhat dysfunctional family. Hmm. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's a funny song. It's an insightful song. Have you ever eaten this and, stuff? No, I have no idea what it is. I don't All even right. know if it exists. But, man, it made me think about what a, an incredible picture he's drawing of these people through the food they eat. It's Polk Salad Annie from Tony Joe White on Sound Opinions. Some of y'all never been down south too much. I'm going to tell you a little bit about this so that you understand what I'm talking about. Down there we have a plant that grows out in the woods and the fields. Looks something like a turnip green. Everybody calls it Polk Salad. Polk Salad. Used to know a girl lived down there and she'd go out in the evenings and pick her a mess of it. Carry it home and cook it for supper. Cause that's about all they had to eat. They did all right. I'm down in Louisiana where the alligators grow so mean. The little dog girl that I swear to the world made the alligators look tame. Poke salad in it. Everybody said it was a shame Cause her mama wasn't working on a chain gang A mean, vicious woman <clears throat> Every day for supper time She'd go down by the truck patch And pick her mess of poke salad Tony Joe Williams, Polk Salad Annie. Greg, in a similar vein for one of my choices about the great rock song about food, you know, you were talking about how that tune encapsulated this woman. The soul of the woman was was linked to the food and uh, said everything you needed to know about her. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, and this is a track I've played before. It's one of the great lead-off album tracks of all time. Cinnamon Girl by Neil Young also falls into that category. The idea that this spice described this girl. I was talking about this song with my wife, who is a brunette. She heard it as a song about a redhead, and I never thought of it in those terms. I thought that the spice, the cinnamon, encapsulated the soul of this girl. She was enticing. She was exactly she was sexy. She was a little fiery. And, uh, well, Neil said it himself. In the liner notes to Decade, he wrote, 
I wrote this for a city girl on peeling pavement, coming at me through Phil Oak's eyes playing finger symbols. <laughs> it was hard to explain to my wife. What else needs to be said? Cinnamon Girl on Sound Opinions. Neil Young's incredible Cinnamon Girl from his first solo album. Greg, you got another great rock song about food? Jim, I do have another choice for a great song that connects music and food. In the 80s, uh, Prince was sort of typecast as this Lothario figure who was always lusting after women. It was, uh, he was always objectifying them, and he saw them as good for only one thing, and I think that is wrong, wrong, wrong. He lo- wrote a lot of great songs about women that were empathetic and uh, sensitive in, in a way that a few other songwriters ever reached. I think one of the best examples of this is Starfish and Coffee. You know, he's talking about being a school kid and a normal school kid of all things. Can you imagine Prince as a normal school kid? <laughs> I don't know. I can't. But compared to Cynthia Rose, for whom he wrote this song, he is Cynthia Rose is who he wanted to be. She embodied everything that Prince wanted to be in this song. She was a little eccentric, a little strange, but a beautiful person who allowed her eccentricities to flow. And the reason he knew that is by looking in her lunchbox and looking what she wanted to eat. Starfish and coffee, maple syrup and jam, butterscotch clouds, a tangerine, and a side order of ham. And he goes, wow, wow, my mind's blown. (laughs) Who is this person? I need to know her better. From Prince, Starfish and Coffee on Sound Opinion. It was 7.45 on the line to go to teach Miss Kathleen. First was Kevin, then came Lucy, third in line was me. All of us were ordinary compared to Cynthia Rose. She always stood at the back of the line, a smile beneath her nose. My favorite number was 20, and every single day. If you ask me what you had for breakfast, this is what she'd say. Fish and coffee, maple syrup and jam, butterscotch clouds and a tangerine, inside it all of a ham. If you set your mind free, baby, maybe you understand. Starfish and coffee, maple syrup and jam. 
red But different color socks Sometimes I wonder If the mates were in her lunchbox Me and Lucy opened it with Cynthia one around Lucy cried, almost died You know what we found Maple syrup and jam Butterscotch cloud, tangerine Inside on a Starfish and Coffee from Prince, a great song that connects music and food, in my opinion. Jim, what have you got next? I tell you, Greg, there's so many ways we could look at this. We could do great songs. We could do songs about our favorite food. When it's a song about a food that we love more than any other, and it's a great song, I mean, that's about as good as it gets, right? I love ice cream. You know, I'm always on a diet, but when I fall off, what I do is, you know, the pint of Ben and Jerry's. You know, I'm sorry. That's that's my biggest vice. This is, I think, the best song ever about ice cream and one of the greatest songs by this artist. A man who once said, there are 40 people in this world and five of them are hamburgers. But this was a song about dessert. Ice Cream for Crow is the lead track on Captain Beefheart's 1982 album of that name. Beefheart, I think, did more than any other artist in rock history to bring the blues into outer space. I think that the sonic innovations of this guy in the late 60s, 70s, and early 80s still haven't been matched. I mean, you know, as radical a reinvention of the jazz sound that bebop was, that's what Beefheart did to blues. And this song, well, like all the rest of his songs, you know, the lyrics are sort of Dadaist and surreal. Real ice cream for crow, sun cream by day, ice cream by night. I don't know what's about, but he keeps saying it. He just keeps saying ice cream, and I want some. Here it is on Sound Opinions. It's so hot, looks like you have three beats cold. The moon's so full, and all a pumpkin. You know there's something. The moon was a stone's throw. Stop the show I need to say hello To the crow Like the fire piano The moon showed up And it started the show Tonight there'll be ice cream Ice cream for crow Ice cream by night, sun cream by day. Ice Cream for Crow from Captain Beefheart, uh, a great song linking music and food from Jim DeRogatis. We've got time for one more, Jim, and uh, I'm going to go with a Van Morrison song, written at a time when Van 
Dublin native, one of the most famous Irishmen in the world. Mm. But he had moved to the United States by, by the time this record was recorded, and he was falling in love with America. He was falling in love with a woman, Janet Planet, who was pictured on the cover of this record. <laughs> and he wrote a song about a very particular type of food grown in the United States. Uh, the namesake for this album is a varietal honey that was produced from the flowers of the Tupelo tree in southeastern United States. So he was, like, mm-hmm. really getting into this idea of getting back to nature and finding America, discovering America, and falling in love. And, and all those elements come together on this song called Tupelo Honey from Van Morrison on Sound Opinions. You can take all the tea in China Put it in a big brown Sail right round all the seven oceans. Drop it straight into the deep blue sea. She's as sweet as Tupelo honey. She's an angel of the first degree. She's as sweet. Said the sweetest tuple of honey Just like honey, baby From the deep You can't stop us On the road to freedom You can't keep us Cause our eyes can see Men within sight Men in granite Chivalry Tupelo Honey by Van Morrison, a nice choice, Greg. A lot of great songs about honey. We could have just done a whole show on that. I'm going to stay in the sweet vein with a song called I Want Candy. Hit in 1965 by a band called The Strange Loves. I think most people of our generation know it from the 1982 version by Bow Wow Wow. I was talking uh, last week about Jerome Green and the Bo Diddley beat. This is a classic example of the Bo Diddley beat. It's massive in the version that Bow Wow Wow recorded. Uh, It has an added sensuality that the Strange Loves didn't have because you have this uh, attractive young woman, Annabella Lewin, very exotic person singing it. You know, she wants candy, and it's it's just absolutely cool. But I'm not going to play the Bow Wow Wow version. I am really excited. We've been talking for weeks about the My Bloody Valentine reunion. They're supposed to come back and finally give us the album we've been waiting for since 1991, sometime this year. Kevin Shields, you know, hasn't been seen much since, but one of the things he did was a remix of this Bow Wow Wow song for the uh, Marie Antoinette film that Sofia Coppola did. So this is uh, Bow Wow Wow's I Want Candy as reimagined by Kevin Shields on Sound Opinions.
Kevin Shields of My Bloody Valentine remixing Bow Wow Wow's I Want Candy. Greg, what do we got on the show next week? Jim, next week we have the aptly named Powerhouse Sound, an all-star quintet that's going to bring the worlds of jazz and rock together. Greg, we have some thank yous for our food show. Of course, Anthony Bourdain and his fellow chefs. We also want to thank Marissa Helms, Jeannie Yandel, and Soren Wheeler, who helped us record some of the other chefs. And of course, Sound Opinions was produced by our able team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Dave Mahler, the intern, with fearless leadership and executive producing and the occasional great meal. Remember when you took us to Capitol Grill? Yes, indeed. Tori Southside Malatia. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic, so give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, my name is John Shepard. I wanted to call in and say thank you so much for the Unsung Hero segment that you did on this past weekend's episode. Due to add to your list, Wayne Cochran, the uh, great King recording artist and several other labels over the years, but known as the White James Brown or the, the Blue Eyed Soul Sensation. And when you think about songs like Last Kiss. Well, oh, where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so I got to be good, so I can see my baby when I leave this world. Or Harlem Shuffle, which has appeared on a Rolling Stones record. There's uh some incredible contributions from a man who a lot of people don't really know about. Hopefully uh, other listeners will hear this and explore Wayne's contributions to R&B and Blue-Eyed Soul. John Shepard calling in from the highways and byways, but originally from Cincinnati, Ohio. Thank you. Hey guys, love your show. This is Eric. Uh, I've got to say one of the great unsung heroes is Mick Ronson. Mick Ronson, the reason that David Bowie is known at all on the first few uh, Bowie albums where he started to rock and continuing through uh, Mata Hoople. You know, he just made those uh, riffs, he made those songs and uh, held it all together. So uh, i got to say Mick Ronson. Hi, this is Tim calling from Richmond, Virginia. I'm calling to nominate as two of my greatest unsung heroes, Andy Wark and Mike Joyce from The Smiths. You know, it's the classic case of having these two almost savant-like people that you've got to play with in Johnny Marr and Morrissey. But if you listen to those songs, it's amazing how propulsive that rhythm section was. I think of a, a track like Handsome Devil and uh, just how spectacular their playing was on that. Boy, those guys could play. Thanks. Bye-bye.
How's it going? This is Mark from Chicago. I was calling in about the uh, undersung heroes, and you actually mentioned him, Sterling Morrison from the Velvet Underground. I don't think he gets his due at all. People always talk about Lou Reed, obviously, and John Cale, and Nico, and even Mo Tucker, but they never mentioned Sterling Morrison. And he was there the entire time, even when they recorded Loaded, and Lou Reed wasn't there, and Mo Tucker wasn't there the whole session. Sterling Morrison was always there. The best song is uh, What Goes On, the jangly guitar that's just amazing, and he never, ever received his uh, proper due for uh, being the guitarist in one of the greatest bands of all time. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Paco from San Juan, Puerto Rico. Regarding your least sung heroes, uh, is the keyboard player for Genesis, Tony Banks. I don't think he gets enough credit for the sound of Genesis. I think he makes up a lot of that sound. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the history. Bye. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.